I don't know if you knew this or not, but God is good. God is good. We have reason to sing. We have reason to celebrate. Come on, church. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to to be in your house, to, to worship with our brothers and sisters, and to lift your name up. The only name that is worthy, the only name, God, the name above all names, Jesus. We lift you up here in this place, Jesus. We worship you, God. We worship you. Thank you for all you've done this week. Jesus' name, come on. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Well, we knew whenever we came in today that today was going to be a celebration celebration. And uh, we, we look forward to hearing the Childs' testimony. I, and I never, I never do know, is it Childs' or just Childs? Is that already plural? I don't know. Uh, but we look forward to hearing their testimony. And I don't want to ruin it here today, but I can tell you this, God has been good. God has been good. Amen. Amen. If you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And as always, I want to honor our pastors, Brother Billy and Sister Peggy Dupree. Thank you so much for all you do for the church here at Calvary Tabernacle and the, the, just the kingdom of God in general. Thank you for loving on us like you do. You are such honorable people. We want to honor you this morning. Amen. Colossians chapter 4. The last few times I've shared with you, we've been going through the book of Colossians, which is actually a letter. So you're reading someone's mail as you're reading through the book of Colossians. It's from a man named Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to the church in Colossae. And uh, this is the, the fourth message that we've done. There's fittingly four chapters in Colossians. So we've just taken it one week at a time going through this letter. And so we're on the last portion right now in Colossians chapter 4. And as always, as, as you're turning there, we want to let you know too, uh, you can get on the Bible app and pull up version if you want to follow along with the service. And we've got some scripture references, some notes in there for you. Then you can add notes of your own. You can see any type of um, announcements that are going on here at Calvary Tabernacle. It'll get you kind of informed at everything that's going on here. So we want to make, let you know that uh, you're welcome to jump on there and do that. It's free. As long as you've got the Bible app on your phone, you can pull it up, push more, and then events, and it should find Calvary Tabernacle for you. You just click on that, and we'll be ready to go. Amen. Um, I just want to give you a friendly reminder that it's almost time to winterize your lawnmowers. It's almost that time. It's almost time to winterize your lawnmower. I don't know if you've ever gone out at the first part of spring, grass is starting to get high, and, uh, you know, the, the leaves have all, you know, blown away, and, and you, flowers are blooming, and birds are singing, and, and you go out, and you get on your lawnmower, or you get to your lawnmower, and you try to start it up, and nothing. How, how many of y'all have ever been irrationally frustrated with that before? Like you've gone out and you've gone to start your lawnmower and it's, it's, it's not even trying to turn over and you're just like, I just want to, mm, for no reason. You know it's your fault that it's not working, right? Because you didn't properly winterize it, right? 
So what do you have to do? You've, you've got to make sure that either take the battery terminals off so that your battery's not plugged in or leave it on a trickle charger. I know Brother Billy, he's the, the king of trickle chargers. I think he's got everything on a trickle charger during the winter, even up here at the church. Make sure that baby stays up and running. You need to make sure that your gas is stabilized so that it doesn't clog up your carburetor during the winter. And some of y'all may be like, eh, I don't know if that's something. I'm, I admit, I'm not a mechanic. This is just things I've heard. So I'm just saying words that I don't even really know what they mean. I'm just repeating things back to you. But there's certain things you need to do to take care of your lawnmower so that whenever you get back on it in the spring, you're able to plug things up and, and clean off the spark plugs and turn the key and that thing should fire right on up. Right? So in this last chapter of the book of Colossians, I think this is what Paul is doing with the church. I think he's saying this, there are some things that you need to do. There's some maintenance things that you need to take care of so that the church runs smoothly and efficiently. The way that you would expect it to run. And so we're going to look into that Colossians chapter 4. I want to read through this uh, chapter with you. We're actually going to skip verse 1. Believe it or not, whenever the Bible was being written, they didn't have all the numbers in there. They didn't have the the chapter and verse markings. That came much later down the road in the, the 15 and 1700s. Those were added in there just so that we could benefit from finding these portions of Scripture more quickly. But those weren't originally in there, so whenever they put chapter 4 where they did in Colossians, it actually took the last part of Paul's thought from chapter 3 that we looked at last time. So we're actually going to start in verse 2 today. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. says these things, Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. And then he gets into the meat of it. Are you ready? This is going to be your favorite part. But just let, let's just take a poll real quick. Let's pause right there real quick. If you've got a, a physical copy of the Bible where you're looking at pages and, and ink, how many of you, if you want to admit, how many of you have anything underlined from verse 7 through the end of the chapter? Anybody? Oh, we got a couple. Okay. All right. If you ever need help with anything spiritual, go to those people right there. They're the ones to go to. (laughs) Verse 7, Paul seems to just start rambling on at the end of the letter about something that just makes no sense to us. Let's, Let's read it. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He's a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have, seen, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we're doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Are you all ready for this one? Aristarchus. I'm not a, a, a Greek 
person, so that's not my first language, obviously, so forgive me if I butchered that. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Jesus, the one we call justice, not to be confused with Christ, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God, and what a comfort they have been. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, and so does Demas. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. After you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so that they can read it too. And you should read the letter I wrote to them. And say to Archippus, Be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Here's my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. Remember my chains. May God's grace be with you. This is what I love about the Bible, and we're going to get into this here in just a moment. But you can literally read anything in the Bible and get some life-giving truth out of it. Even the parts where you're like, ah, I usually just kind of skip over this part or I just read it really quick and, and get on to the, the parts that just sound like you could cross-stitch it onto a pillow, you know, something that, that you could post in your home. Like no one has a, a, uh, a picture in their home that says uh, that, you know, meet, greet Mark the way that you should, you know, welcome him the way that you should. No one has anything in their home saying, you know, Tychicus is bringing you uh, the, uh, a message. Like, no one's got that. We, we've got, you know, John 3.16 and Jeremiah 29.11. But can I tell you something, church? You can get life from this book no matter where you read. It is a good, good book. So here's the first thing I want us to take from this chapter here today. And this is what Paul tells the church in Colossae. For the church to be effective, we must be devoted to prayer, devoted to prayer. And I don't want to get ahead of things here, but this last week, whenever phone calls and text messages started going around saying, hey, the childs need prayer. Can I tell you what? This church started praying. This church started praying. Even beyond this church, this community started praying for that little baby girl. And I love what Paul is saying here. Listen, for the church to run effectively, for it to be an effective church, you've got to be devoted to prayer. I had no doubt in my mind that day I got a phone call and prayed over the phone. I had no doubt in my mind this baby's going to live. She's going to live But what if we took that approach to everything that we pray for in the church? Every time we pray, what if we had that mentality? God's going to move. God has this. I can put my faith in him. Paul is telling the church, you need to be devoted to prayer. And he tells us this. We we need to be devoted to prayer with, with two ideas behind this. You need to have an alert mind and a thankful heart. 
when you pray. How many of y'all, if all the honest believers in the room, how many of you ever pray and it's just kind of like a distracted, just, uh, I'm going to pray this real quick. Is that, is that only me? All right, so don't come to me for any, no one else raised their hand. That's all right. That's all right. I'm glad to be a part of this body. I'll grow. I'll mature. But sometimes you pray, and it just feels like a duty. Or maybe like, you know, the, the good Christians are supposed to pray, and, and there's this prayer request. But I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know much about the situation. I don't, I'll just pray, you know, just throw it up there and see what happens. Paul says this, when you pray, pray with an alert mind an alert mind. And the Greek word that he uses here for alert mind, it gives the idea of a bodily posture. This idea means that you put your shoulders back, you stick your chest out, you put your chin up, you get your feet planted and you clench your fists like, I'm about to go into this thing. I'm about to war right now. Whenever Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind, the Greek words that are using are giving this idea that this prayer is not just going to be something just thrown up to heaven, but my mind is going to battle right here. I am going to pray with an alert mind, watchful, diligent, intentional. And he says, couple that with a thankful heart. A thankful heart. If you remember a couple weeks back, whenever we started talking about Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul lets them know, I'm in prison. I'm writing this letter in prison. And he's talking to the church now in, in chapter 4, and he's like, hey, listen, be devoted to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. I don't know about you, but as the mature believer that I am, if I'm in prison, my heart's probably not really thankful at that moment. <laughs> my heart is, is probably a little bit in a protest mode. Like, God, why do you have me here? Like, couldn't I be so much more effective for your church, for your body, for your kingdom if I was out there free? I could travel from place to place and tell about the wonderful things you got. God, why am I here? Lord, would you break me out of this prison? You did it for Peter. You can do it for me. Like, that's, that's my heart. That's my prayer. I'm, I'm not praying what Paul says here, pray that I can proclaim the gospel clearly. <laughs> I'm praying, God, get me, out of these, get me out of these bars. Get me out of these chains. But I want you to notice in this, whenever Paul encourages them to be devoted to prayer, he says, well, by the way, while you're praying, pray for us too, that we would have many opportunities to share the gospel. But notice not once does he ever say, pray that these chains would fall off my wrists or pray that my sentence would be commuted or pray that I could get out of here. What does he do? He says, pray with a thankful heart. No matter what season you're in, no matter what situation you're going through, no matter where you find yourself in life, our hearts should always be in a posture of thankfulness to God. Always. Always. We should be thankful to God. And Paul's not encouraging them like, hey, listen, pray with thankfulness because I'm in prison and you're not. It's not he's saying posture your heart with a thankfulness, a thankful attitude. That's the way we should live, church. That's the way we should pray. Can you imagine a church that prays with resolve, 
a church that prays with an alert mind, with a watchful mind, a church that prays and means what they pray, and they pray from a thankful heart, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances. Can you imagine what that church would look like? Oh, come on. Paul's saying you got to dust the cobwebs off. you got to make sure this thing is maintained so that this church will run effectively. Pray with thankfulness, even in the worst situations. Skip ahead for just a moment, if you would. I believe it's in uh, verse 14. Yeah, verse 14, Colossians 4, verse 14. He talks about two people. He talks about Luke, the beloved doctor, since his greetings, and so does Demas. Here's one thing I really like about this, because as you're reading through this, you may think that this doesn't matter a whole lot to you. You may see the word Demas and be like, whoa, was he the 13th disciple? Like, what's going on here with this guy? Like, why is Paul talking about Demas? Well, if you read more in Paul's letters, he actually mentions Demas several times. And here in Colossians chapter 4, Demas is with them. Demas is a fellow minister of the gospel. He's a fellow servant of Jesus Christ with Paul. And Paul is telling the church in Colossae, hey, Demas says hello. But if you look a little bit further down in your Bible in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, And this is what he has to say about Demas. This is around five to six years after he wrote to the Colossians. This is what he says about Demas. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Demas has deserted me. Why? Because he loves the things of this life. How sad is that, church? How sad is that? We see it all the time in, in America. Pastors that are pastoring a thriving church and they get caught up in something and because of that their reputation has been discredited their ministry has been discredited and and it's always heartbreaking and sad to see and Paul is sharing that this isn't a new thing to the church in America but this has been going on there's a man named Demas who loved the things of this life And that's what his attention was on. So whenever Paul says pray with an alert mind and a thankful heart, what he's doing is saying this. Whenever you live a life devoted to prayer, what that is doing is it is putting your attention on God and taking your attention off of this, off of this life. Whenever you pray with an alert mind and a thankful heart, Your attention isn't just on yourself, on your comfort, on the things that you hope for, the things that you think you need. Your attention is on Jesus. Why? Because I can say that even in this situation, God, I am thankful. Even though I am in chains, I am thankful. Even though the doctor's report wasn't good, I am thankful. Even though this person walked away, I am thankful. Even though the cancer has spread, I am thankful. Even though, even though, God, I am thankful. That's what a devoted prayer life will do for you, church. It takes your focus off of yourself and puts it all on Jesus. If you want to be an effective church, you have to turn your eyes upon Jesus. There's an old song. Turn your eyes. I'm not going to sing it for you. Brother Billy says he can't sing. Well, I, I can't sing either, so... Maybe they'll sing it some other time, but 
It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Here's the second thing Paul tells the church in Colossae to do. He says, be devoted to prayer and be effective in evangelism. Effective in evangelism. In verse 4 of Colossians 4, Paul says, pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. This is a message that should be proclaimed clearly. Someone say clearly. We shouldn't confuse this message to the unbelieving world, church. We should be able to speak the gospel clearly. Our prayer should be, God, help me to speak your word as clearly as I should. Verse 5, he says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Your translation may say, be gracious and seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. I asked Emily if she would this morning put something in the oven for me. You might have smelled it as you walked in this morning. But I've got a basket here from from Miss Angie, she gifted us this beautiful basket and, and towel this last week. And this is full of, I, I, I don't know about you. I, let me let you know, guys, I have a problem. I've got a problem. <laughs> Whenever I preach lately, I've just been preaching and food has been involved somehow. I've, I've got a problem. And, and my problem really is with bread. I love bread. I love it. I Don't get me wrong. I like meat. I love vegetables. But there's just something about bread. So Even Jesus loved bread. He talked about bread all the time. So I feel like maybe I'm a little like Jesus in that area. But uh, imagine you go somewhere and you walk in and you smell some delicious home-baked rolls. There is nothing that makes you more hungry. There is nothing that makes your mouth salivate more than the smell of homemade yeast rolls. It's my weakness. It's my weakness. Now, we've got it in this beautiful basket, this beautiful towel, fall-themed. It even says, give us this day our daily bread. So we're, we're believing that. Amen. And imagine you go to someone's home and this is sitting on the counter and they're, they're warm and they're still steaming and you just smell them and, oh, and, and the host says, well, go ahead, you have one. They're delicious. You go over there and you, you pick one up and you take a bite of it and they're just so, they're, they're so fluffy and just, oh. Is anybody else's mouth salivating? I'm sorry. <laughs> now you are like, okay, what time is lunch? We got to get out of here. Speed, speed it up, man. <laughs> now imagine that you go to someone's home and you smell these delicious rolls and they ask you, do you want one? And you say, well, absolutely, yes. And they pick one up out of the basket and they just... Uh, 
There you go. Oh, almost had it. How much do you want that role now? That, that's why I threw it to one of my students because they're like, you know, I'll, I'll eat it. I'll still, it's fine. It's good. It's all right. In the back, they're like, hey, what about us? I see more rolls in that basket. There's actually a, a restaurant, and uh, John Metter, he, was, uh, he may be in the foyer right now, but he was talking to me about it earlier as he went in the kitchen and smelled these rolls. He's like, have you ever been to Lambert's? I'm like, absolutely. Praise the Lord. <laughs> sure have. The home of the throne. Throne roll? Throne roll? Throne? Throne. I'm going to say throne. Home of the throne roll. But they use the, the nice little tongs whenever they toss them, you know, so you know it's kind of sanitary, maybe a little bit. I don't know. Miss Diane probably doesn't eat there. But <laughs> but imagine someone just comes and they just grab one and just, I mean, they, they just pick it up and, and just, here you go. You're probably not going to want that one, right? Let me ask you this. Is it any different than those right there? The ingredients are the same. They came out of the same lump of dough. They were cooked exactly the same. They were cooked on the same tray in the same oven at the same time. They're still fresh. It's still hot. It's actually still warm. It's still warm, isn't it, Will? It's still warm. (laughs) But you don't want this one. Why? It's because... The presentation, it's because of the way that it was delivered. And what does Paul say to the church in Colossae? He says, whenever you interact with unbelievers, let your conversation be gracious and attractive or seasoned with salt. In other words, whenever you as a believer speak about the gospel with an unbeliever, This is what Paul is saying. You better present it well. It needs to be presented in a way that will be appetizing and attractive to the unbeliever. But church, how many times have we just chosen to say, this is the good news. It doesn't matter how we tell the way. It's just the good news. The good news is good enough. I believe the good news is good enough. But Paul says this, whenever you share it, let it be attractive. I'm going to tell on myself for a minute. Y'all are probably going to think I'm a really bad person. But I, I ordered a book last week after studying this right here. I ordered a book. Uh, it's by a man named Chris Voss. He's the former top FBI nego- hostage negotiator for 20-something years. And um, he, as an FBI hostage negotiator, uh, he had to speak on the phone with terrorists and and kidnappers and people who were suicidal and and he had to speak with people in some of the most tense situations and try to talk them into or out of something that they didn't want to do or that they wanted to do. He had to try to change their mind. And I I bought this book. Y'all are going to think, wow, I don't don't know. But I bought this book because I'm like, hey, listen, I want to learn how to talk to the skeptic. I want to learn how to talk to the atheist, those whose minds are against the word of God. And I want to be able to share the gospel in a way that will be attractive to them. You may say, "Eh, that sounds kind of a little bit deep. Like, 
I mean, I ordered a secular book to learn how to talk. But some of you are like, oh, no, that's a big no, Sam, not for me. But listen, if we could make our presentation of the gospel attractive to others, can you imagine the revival we would see in this community, in this state, in this country, in this world, if we would just learn how to communicate graciously and attractively with unbelievers. This is what Paul is saying. For you to be an effective church, you need to know how to share the good news. It is good news. It is delicious. But if you just take it up, crumble it up, and throw it at somebody, it's not going to be very attractive. You need to learn how to present it. And so in this book, he, he talks about you know, how to convince someone of something that they are sure it's the opposite. And I'm reading this book, and I'm like, this is, this is really good. This is going to be helpful. And uh, so anyways, you, and you may think, I don't know, that just sounds kind of devious, kind of shrewd, a little bit cunning. I just don't know about that. I want to show you what Jesus says, <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. This is what Jesus says as he sends out his 12 apostles. He says, look, in other words, pay attention. Don't get distracted. All eyes on me. Look right up here. I'm about to do something, so you really, really need to get this. Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You're going to be outnumbered. You're going to be outgunned. You're, I mean, the, the devil, he's, he's cunning. He's shrewd. So what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? He says, so be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Reading this verse, I think all of us feel like this is something that Jesus would say, you know, the dove part. You know, as you go out, disciples, be as innocent as doves. Like that's the idea of Jesus we have. Jesus says this, be as shrewd as snakes. I don't know when the last time you went to an evangelism class and they're like, hey, listen, if you're going to reach the lost, you're going to have to be a snake about it. <laughs> be as shrewd as Snakes. No doubt, as Jesus is speaking this, he's giving imagery to his disciples that were versed in Scripture, that he had been teaching, that were of Jewish descent. They knew the history of where they had come from, and Jesus is giving them an image that goes all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles, and it tells us a story about a garden and two people, Adam and Eve, standing in front of a tree. And there's a serpent there, a snake who's being shrewd and cunning. And Jesus is giving them this imagery. Why? Because he's saying this, as you go out into the unbelieving world, you're going to have to be wise among the unbelievers. You're going to have to be shrewd and cunning. We don't take those words as being something that's positive, but Jesus says that about us. We need to be shrewd as snakes. So I don't know about you, but maybe we need to learn how to share the gospel a little better. Maybe we really need to take a moment and say, whenever I share this good news, is it gracious and attractive? Like, are people being drawn into it? Or every time I go out and talk to my friends or my coworkers or just someone on, randomly on the street, are they just being like, nah, sorry, don't want it. I don't know. I don't know. We need to be attractive with our speech, gracious 
with our speech. For the church to be effective, we need to be devoted to prayer and effective in evangelism. Here's the last point. For the church to be effective, we must excel in brotherly affection. Excel in brotherly affection. For this part, in Colossians chapter 4, starting at verse 7 on down through the end, Paul is just naming off people within the church. So-and-so sends you their greeting. Welcome, so-and-so, this person I'm sending over here. And it seems to not mean a whole lot to us, but I want to show you what Paul is teaching the church in Colossae. Are you ready for this? He's teaching us this, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should encourage one another. Verse 7 through 8, he talks about Tychicus. He says, he'll give you a full report about how I'm getting along. He's a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. What's the purpose? To let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. As a body of believers, we should be the most encouraging people on this planet. How many times have you seen squabbles within churches and you're just like, Ugh. in fact, most of the people that I talk to that don't go to church, they say, well, I don't go to church because it's full of, help me out, it's full of hypocrites. They don't get along. They don't like each other. They're always fighting and bickering. And Paul says this, I'm sending someone to encourage you. This word courage means to, or encourage means to give courage So whenever Paul says he's sending Tychicus, he's saying, I'm sending him to give you courage, to build you up, to work on that firm foundation that you can stand upon. We need to excel in brotherly affection. In verse 9, he mentions another man. He says, I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Did you know, some, most of you probably do, but did you know that Onesimus was a runaway slave? In the book of Philemon, it's actually another letter that Paul writes to a friend of his named Philemon. And in this letter, he tells him, hey, you know the slave that ran away? Uh, yeah, I stumbled across him, and now he's a believer. Now that he's been with me, he believes in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he is a faithful brother And so now he's telling, because Onesimus and Philemon are from Colossae, which this letter is written to, and Paul is writing this letter, sending it with Tychicus, and he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon, his former master, and he tells them this, welcome him back as a brother, as a brother. This is what Paul is telling the church there. In church, amongst God's people, We should be so welcoming, so welcoming. I've heard so many people that have come to Calvary and and they came back the next week and be like, I I just felt like I was at home when I came here. Like I just felt like people loved me. I just felt so welcome and warm and invited here. That's the way that the church should be. I'm not just talking about Calvary Tabernacle. That's the way the kingdom of God should be. We should welcome one another, not be grumbling, not complaining, not gossiping about one another, welcoming one another. He says this in verse 10. I like this one. 
Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. He says, as you have been instructed before, when he comes, make him welcome. For those of you that have enjoyed the book of Acts here in recent past, you may have noticed that there was two people that got in quite an argument in that book. Names are Paul and Barnabas, two of the most notable leaders of the church at that time. And they had been around this area where they were currently were, and they had started churches, and they had um, shared the gospel. And now Paul is telling Barnabas, he's saying, hey, let's go back to all the cities that we've been to and see how they're doing, see how they're getting along. Let's go and encourage them. And Barnabas says, absolutely, let's take Mark along. And Paul says, mm-mm, not, he's not going with us. Mark was with us as we started going through all of this area, but he left us, Barnabas. Don't you remember? Mark abandoned us. I'm not going if Mark's going. This is Paul, the greatest apostle. I'm not going if Mark. Mm-mm. Paul and Barnabas got in such a heated debate that they split, went different directions, which I love Brother Billy. He preached on this one time. And he said that could have been just God getting the gospel in multiple areas at the same time because God can work through, through disunity, absolutely. But it still hurts us whenever we're not in unity. But then now we read in Colossians, this is some time after that happened with Paul and Barnabas and Mark. And what does Paul say? He says, hey, I'm sending Mark, Barnabas's cousin, which gives us some indication of why Barnabas so vehemently wanted Mark to come with him because it was his family, it's his cousin, the kinfolk. But now Paul is saying, welcome Mark back, as I've told you before. Why did he have to tell them before? It might have been, I'm not saying it is, but it might have been because Paul, the greatest apostle ever, might have been about Mark. <laughs> might have been kind of yay in about Barnabas and Mark, and, and maybe now Paul, we know that now Paul has at least forgiven Mark, if not asked for Mark's forgiveness, and now they are united together as brothers again and as fellow workers in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he tells them this, whenever Mark comes, welcome him back, forgive him. Whenever Mark comes, don't treat him as, as he was being treated earlier, <laughs> but welcome him back and forgive him. As a church, we should forgive one another. If the worship team would come on up, that'd be great. He goes on in verse 11 and talks about a guy named Justice, or a guy named Jesus, the one they call Justice. They're probably like, now nah, we can't have this confusion. <laughs> There's only one Jesus. I know your name is Jesus too, but uh, yeah, we're just going to call you Justice. Uh, <laughs> he says, Justice also sends his greetings. He says, these are the only Jewish believers among my coworkers. They're working with me here for the kingdom of God. Paul is in Rome at this time. And what a comfort they have been. There's this guy named Justice that apparently was from Colossae. Because Paul's like, hey, he's, he's telling you hello. He's part of your own. He's telling you hello. But he has left Colossae to come here to Rome to assist me while I am in chains, while I am in prison. 
I can't get out of these walls and go preach to the masses, but I've got a guy here named Jesus who we call Justice who does just that, and what a comfort he has been. Church, we should be the most comforting people, the most comforting people. When people are hurting, when people are broken, we should be a source of comfort, a body of believers that anyone can run to and say, I need help. And we are able to say, my arms are open. What can I help you with? We should be a church that comforts Verse 12 through 13, he talks about Epaphras. And he says, Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. And in fact, in the beginning of Colossians, we actually learned that Epaphras started the church in Colossians. Now he's in prison as well with Paul. And he says this, he sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God, I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. We've seen the benefit of that this week, church, of a church that comes together and prays hard, a church that doesn't forget, doesn't neglect, doesn't just brush something off to the side as as being unimportant, but a church that will say, I will stand with you in prayer. If you need prayer, come to me. Give me a call. Send me a text. Knock on my door. I will pray for you. I will pray with you. And even after you leave, my heart is still going to be with you. I'm going to be praying for you. I may not be with you, but I serve a God who is omnipresent, and I can communicate with him, and he can be with you in your deepest, darkest moments. And the last one right here that I want to share is in verse 16. Paul tells the church in Colossae to share this letter with the church in Laodicea. And I've also sent them a letter that I want you to read. What is he saying here? He's, he's saying, and churches then weren't like churches now. You had the church in the city, but they met together in homes across the city. Here we have the wonderful benefit of being able to come all together from all over the city and join together in one building. But back then, they met together in people's homes and they would pass these letters around. And Paul says, there's another church in a neighboring city, the city of Laodicea. I want you to read what I wrote them and share what I wrote to you. What is he saying here? As believers, one of the most wonderful things that we can do is come together and get in this book together. Encourage one another through the words on these pages. Study it together talk about it together. Reason with one another through the word of God. As a church, we should be devoted to prayer. We should be effective in evangelism. But church, listen to me. We should also excel in brotherly affection. Being that brother and sister that will stand beside you and pray for you, love you, comfort you, welcome you, study with you. I love that about Calvary Tabernacle. I feel like we do that really well, church. Can I brag on y'all for a minute? I feel like we do that really well. And I want to encourage you with that. And that's what Paul is encouraging this church with here. He's saying, you're already doing it. Keep doing it. Excel in it. Be really good at it. Be really good at it. Last scripture I want to share with you in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. 
Paul is writing to the church in Rome here, and he says this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. I feel like it's easy to play church. I feel like it's really easy to say the right words. Amen, brother. But Paul's saying this. Don't just pretend. Don't just play church. Don't just act like you care for one another, but then don't support one another. Don't just act like you're praying because you've got a microphone or or because you're with somebody else. Like, pray for them at home in your bedroom. (laughs) Really love each other. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. And love each other with genuine affection. Your translation may say brotherly affection. It comes from the Greek word may have heard of it. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Believe it or not, we Americans didn't come up with that. (laughs) It's a Greek word. It means brotherly love, brotherly affection. And Paul is saying this, love each other with a brotherly love. Now, we would be insane to think that all of these humans could exist together and worship together and and learn together and pray together without ever having any type of squabble. We know that's not going to happen. It happens all the time. So Paul tells them what? Love each other with a brotherly love. How many of you have a sibling that growing up you're just like, (laughs) oh man, it was on. Sure, we loved each other, but we had a funny way of showing it. Like, you know, tackling each other onto a couch and, you know, the brother's head goes through the window. Not that that's happened before, but, you know, just saying. It, it could happen, right? It could. But even though you may squabble, even though you may bicker at times, brothers, at least in my family, me and my brothers love each other. And when push comes to shove, They would drop anything for me, and I would drop anything for them. To be there with them, to encourage them, to love them, to serve them. And that's what Paul is saying here. So this is what I want you to do. If you would stand to your feet with me, if you're able. When Paul writes this letter to the church, they're doing well. He tells them at the beginning, you're doing well. You're doing a good job. I'm proud of you, church. He says, but there are a couple of things that we need to make sure that we're maintaining so that this church continues to run effectively. This church continues to be a church that has power and that walks in the authority of the Holy Spirit, a church that continues to love one another and serve one another. If you're going to be effective as a church, you need to do a little bit of maintenance along the way. Remember, be devoted to prayer. Be effective in your evangelism and excel in brotherly affection. Church, if we would do these things right here, can you imagine what our community would look like next week? Wow, we've already seen an incredible, incredible benefit of that this week. Imagine coming here every Sunday and there's a celebration going on. Imagine the the Word of God tells us that in heaven, when even one person repents 
and turns to God, that there is a celebration amongst the angels when even one, imagine every Sunday we come in here and it's a celebration. Can we do that, church? Can we knock the cobwebs off? Can we, can we put a little bit of WD-40 in the spark, hu- spark plug holes? I don't even know what that does, but I saw my dad do it as a kid growing up. Like, can we do those little maintenance things that will keep this church running smoothly and efficiently and effectively and powerfully? So this is what I want to encourage you to do this week. This week, I want you to devote yourself to prayer for one person that you know who is not a believer, and devote yourself to prayer for one person that is a believer that really needs comfort this week. Can you do that for me? I'm not talking about just, oh yeah, when I remember I'll pray for them. No, 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 no. I'm talking about take some time to pray for them. Take some time with an alert mind and a thankful heart to get in prayer for the unbeliever and the believer in your life, to boldly and effectively share the gospel with those around you and to love and comfort your brothers. Can we do that, church? Can we do that? Amen, amen. I love you. Let's worship.